What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I recently got back from a 10-day trip in Eastern Africa, where I visited water-stressed areas and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Rather than a conversation with a specific guest, I'm going to fly solo and talk about my recent trip, including the details behind climbing Africa's tallest mountain, the difference clean, accessible water makes in a community, and what I learned from the experience. I hope you enjoy this episode, but before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals can change over the course of the day depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy the easiest and best way to play fantasy sports. Join a league and draft a team in minutes. They make it that easy, and yes, that simple. But if you'd like to spice things up, try their new Pick'em game. Just pick over or under on your favorite or least favorite player's stats, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile apps. Pick between two and five players, and you could take home some cold hard cash. Go to underdogfantasy.com and use code POMP that's right, P-O-M-P, POMP, and get your first deposit doubled by Underdog today. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnership with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One, or maybe you've seen their legendary Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, You can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX wants to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today. Use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's that easy. All right, let's get into today's episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. So as I mentioned in the intro, this episode is going to be a little different than normal. There's not going to be a specific guest, no questions from the audience or anything like that. Instead, I'm just going to take some time and break down a recent trip I took to Eastern Africa, specifically Tanzania. 
Now, some of you may know about this trip. I wrote about it in my newsletter, but some of you may also be hearing about this for the first time. So I'm going to break down exactly what I was doing there, the charity that I was with, how I got involved, the fundraising efforts, actually climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and some of the difficulties associated with that, and then what I learned along the way. So I hope you guys enjoy it, but I think the easiest place to start is just some background on the charity and how I got involved. So if you're a football fan of the NFL specifically, you probably know Chris Long. He's a son of Howie Long. He himself was a top NFL draft pick of the St. Louis Rams at the time. He played for the New England Patriots. He played for the Philadelphia Eagles and won two Super Bowls, one with each of those teams. I think he's actually one of the few players in history to win back-to-back Super Bowls on different teams. He won first with the Patriots and then went to the Eagles and won there also. So had a really good career, made a lot of money and all of that. But in 2013, part of what people maybe don't know about him is he traveled to Tanzania. So Tanzania, for those that don't know, is on Eastern Africa, right below Kenya. And he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Kilimanjaro is one of the tallest mountains in the world. It's the tallest point in Africa. They call it the roof of Africa. And he went over there and climbed it and tried to summit the highest peak in Africa. It's 19,341 feet in total. Takes anywhere from four to seven days, depending on the route that you're taking and how aggressively you want to try to accomplish it. But Chris did it. He accomplished it. He returned down the mountain and loved the region, went back to his hotel. And this is where it got interesting. So at his hotel, he ran into Joe Buck and Doug Pitt. So if you're a sports fan, you probably know who Joe Buck is, a commentator, broadcaster, announcer. And then Doug Pitt is the younger brother of Brad Pitt. So Chris runs into them at the hotel bar, and the meetup was a total coincidence. But Doug Pitt is the goodwill ambassador for Tanzania, and he was in town building sustainable water wells. And Joe Buck, as a friend, had come along and was helping him. So Chris sits down with them, and Doug starts to explain exactly what he's doing, why he's there, and why it's important. He walks him through the water problem, specifically in Africa. And three individual stats stuck out to Chris and me, and I know he's talked about these before. And the three are roughly 800 million people, or one in nine globally, lack basic drinking water. The second one is one in five child deaths under the age of five is from water-related illness. So about 20% of child deaths under the age of five globally is due to water-related illness. And then half of the world's population will live in a water-stressed area by 2025. That's in three years. So Chris was obviously like, okay, holy shit, that sounds like a problem. But then Doug took it one step further. He literally showed him the problem, right? So he drove him out to some of the villages. He drove him out to some of the schools and some of the areas that was really being impacted by these water shortages or or the inability to have clean, accessible water. So one quote in particular stuck out to me when I remember reading about the story for the first time a few years ago. And it was when Chris went out to the local community and Doug brought him there and he saw exactly what was happening. And the direct quote is this. He said, when you see a four-year-old kid drinking water from the same pond where animals defecate, you cannot help but be motivated to do something, right? So that's literally what was happening. I can't show you guys a picture over the podcast, but Chris has published these photos before. They're on the waterboys.org website and you can find them online in other places too. But these women and children, that's usually who's walking to go get the water. In most cases, in some of these communities, they're walking miles on end, up to 10, 15, 20 miles, even in some cases, depending on how remote the village is, to find water. And when they find this water, it's not clean water. It's not healthy water, right? They are literally, in the case of what Chris saw, they were pulling it from a pond where animals were literally defecating into it as they were pulling the water out. It was green. It was murky. It was disgusting. It had contaminated sources within it and all of that. So 
Chris sees this. He's obviously moved by it. He had just finished climbing the mountain. He thought the region was beautiful. He loved the people and all these things. And now he sees this other side of it that he didn't know before. So to his credit, he decides to get involved, right? So he goes back to the United States and he starts a charity organization called the Water Boys. So if you think of the Chris Long Foundation, it's, it's his family foundation and it's the holding company, right? And they have a bunch of different initiatives. And one of these is the Water Boys. And the Water Boys was a very simple idea, right? It was to provide clean, accessible drinking water to communities in need. And he later established a specific goal of 1 million people he wanted to help. But the general idea was just to raise awareness, right? And as Chris Long was an NFL player at the time and had this big audience and had the ability to reach more people through the game of football, I think he realized the easiest way to do this was to attract other people like him. So he set out and he built a roster, we'll call it, of NFL water boys. And that included guys like AJ Hawk, Calais Campbell, Chris Harris, Danny Amendola, Delaney Walker, Fred Jackson, Hunter Henry, Joe Thomas, Justin Tuck, Kyle Long, Miles Garrett, Russell Wilson, and others. NFL players also with big names and people that wanted to help. And not only just from a money perspective, but also, you know, go out and raise money themselves, not just donate. And the original goal for Chris was to raise enough money to install 32 water wells in Tanzania. And the number 32 was picked on purpose because there's 32 NFL teams. So one for each NFL team and each well costs $50,000. So if you just do the public math on that, you know, that's a few million dollars that he was looking to raise and he set out to go to work and they ended up doing that. Right. So he kept returning and installing these wells and doing it. And we're now, I guess, seven or eight years removed from his first trip to Tanzania and there's a few years in between there where he was setting everything up, but the Chris Long Foundation has installed over 100 water wells in Eastern Africa. Most of them are within Tanzania. There's a few in Kenya and other places also, but they've worked with other organizations and they continue to do this. So I first heard about this just as someone who was interested in football, someone who was a fan of Chris Long and, and his story, and I wanted to get involved, right? So I wrote about this story in my newsletter. I tweeted about it last year. And one of the tweets actually ended up going, we'll call it somewhat viral, and it got a lot of traction. People started donating. And it was as simple as, I just said the story, right? You guys can look it up and I can link to it actually. And if you look at it, it was 10, 12 tweets. I just said exactly what I just told you guys here. And I said, hey, I'm going to donate $50 or $100 or whatever it was. If you guys want to donate too, like, cool. If not, more people know about this story and that's great also. And the tweet ended up going, and I think we raised randomly 15 or, or so thousand dollars, maybe $16,000 off of that. So Chris reached out. He was funny. He was like, you know, I don't want to retweet this. It seems like I'm bragging, but I really appreciate your help. And like, thank you so much. And the perfect response, right? I, I totally get that. But when it came down to it, I just said, hey, look, man, I want to be involved. So if there's something that comes up where I'm able to do the trip, if something else happens, if you need any help with anything, let me know. And I end up applying for this trip. I get accepted eventually. So I get a call from Chris's organization and they say, hey, look, we want you to come. And I start fundraising again. So for those that don't know, Conquering Keeley is one of the initiatives of Waterboys. So as a Waterboy, there's an opportunity to go on this trip called Conquering Keeley. And the general idea is that you're doing the exact same thing that Chris has done in the NFL, which is raise money for water wells to be installed in Tanzania and other areas of Eastern Africa. And by doing that, one of the requirements is to climb Mount Kilimanjaro or to at least attempt to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, similar to what he did. So he started this program with Nate Boyer, who's an NFL player, former NFL player, and Army Green Beret. And they set out and did it. And they've done it five or six or maybe even seven years since. I think they only missed one year due to COVID. And it's a collection of people. They have former NFL players or current NFL players that do it. I know Haloti Nada's done it. I know Jason Kelsey's done it. I know a bunch of other NFL players that have done it. 
and they have retired military personnel. So veterans, they bring along for the trip also. Some are disabled, some are completely mobile, but a mix of retired military personnel. And then what they call clean water advocates, which are guys like me, women like me, that just want to make a difference, do not have a background in the NFL, we're not in the military or anything like that, but want to use their ability to fundraise to help people in Africa. So I signed up for the trip and I didn't want to tell them this before, but I've literally never climbed a mountain. So to sign up for a trip where you are agreeing to climb the tallest mountain in Africa, the tallest peak in Africa, that's 19,341 feet, it would be the tallest peak in the continental United States also, is certainly daunting. <laughs> but I said, why not? Screw it. Let's go for it. So I sign up and I wrote about this in the newsletter. And first off, I think it's important. I just want to thank everyone, whoever is listening that did end up donating or told someone else about it that ended up donating or learned more about it or looked into the problem. Because off one newsletter alone, I was able to raise over, I think, $23,000 from 130 different donors, right? So some donations were $5. Someone even donated $1,000, right? So there was a good mix of kind of people giving their ability to donate and really making a difference. So thank you guys so much for that because that was huge, 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 huge. So that was fantastic. I fundraised probably about a few months before. I ended up leaving about two weeks ago. The trip was 10 to 12 days in total. It takes about 36 hours to get there. I flew from Miami to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Mount Kilimanjaro Airport in Tanzania. So I'm going to break down next a little bit about what happened on the trip. The trip is broken up into two main kind of categories, we'll call them. The first few days, you're actually spending visiting the villages and the schools that these programs help, right? So sometimes they go to places that need wells, and then sometimes they go to places that already have wells, and you can see the difference. So we went to two places. We went to a village, remote village, and then we went to a school. Let's start with the remote village. The remote village was... One of the most interesting things I've ever seen, we were staying in the town of Arusha and the remote village was about two and a half, maybe even three hours outside of Arusha. And when you're in Arusha, the paved roads end after about 30 to 40 minutes. <laughs> and then you're basically on a mix of gravel and then just dirt roads. Tanzania is famous for their rainy season, but the rainy season started a little bit early this year. So it rained essentially almost every day we were there at some point. But the roads were really bad on the way to the remote village because you're two hours plus out of any kind of major city. The roads are, are really bad. There's animals everywhere. There is mud. There's standing water and so forth. We actually passed a few trucks on the way there that were stuck in the mud. Luckily, we were in these like safari looking vehicles, Land Rovers that had four wheel drive and all of that. And we were able to get there. One of the cars got stuck, but we would pull them out and kept going and all of that. And it ended up working out where we got there. But the point is that this village is so, so remote that they don't have the ability to get water from other sources. They don't have the ability to build houses. They don't have any of this stuff. So if you think about this village in the past, before they had a water well, I think their water well got installed maybe two years ago. We did a ribbon cutting ceremony, but it had been installed for at least a year or maybe two at this point. But what they did in the past was women and children, because that's usually who's doing this, were walking 10 miles at a time to go get water from a dirty river or dirty creek. And they would transport the water back in these containers to the villages and then use it there. There's a couple problems with that, obviously, which is you have to walk extremely far to go get it. And then secondly, the water is not clean. So accessibility and then the cleanliness of the water were both missing. So we go to this village. And to be quite honest, one of the things that concerned me the most was I like to think that I'm somewhat decent at my ability to read the room. And we were essentially a group of middle-aged white men going into a remote African village with our phones and taking pictures and all this stuff. And I was a little bit concerned about how we would be perceived. 
I literally asked someone that I said, Hey, look, like, is this okay? Cause you don't want to be a jerk. You know, you're visiting their country. You're within their culture. You don't want to seem like you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And what we quickly found out was the second that they find that you're the people that help them find water, the entire environment changes. They're very welcoming. They love you. They want to take pictures with you. They want to thank you. They want to do all of this, which was very cool to see just how much of an impact it made on them. So we go to this village and the easiest way to think about it is it's again on dirt roads. Most of the houses are made out of dirt or clay with literally tree branches holding them up and all of this stuff. It's just a very poverty driven area. And we get there and we go check out the water well. The water well was strategically placed. A normal water well may service 2,500 people, maybe 3,000 people, maybe 4,000 people. But the water well that was done here was placed strategically in between three different villages that were all remote. And maybe they still had to walk a mile or maybe even less to get the water. But since it was placed in between three villages, it was able to service 15,000 people instead of just 2,500 or 3,000 people. So a multitude more of people were able to use this water well. And we got there and we did the ribbon cutting ceremony. And we talked to the people, they thanked us. We actually planted trees next to it to protect it, right? And it was just a really cool ceremony. It was really awesome to see how much this water meant to them. And for people who don't understand exactly what's going on over there, I think one of the things that stuck out the most to me was that someone told us when we were there that people within the village, they would shower four times a year. Literally, that's what they said. They said, before we got this water, we showered four times a year. We would do it once a quarter or bathe once a quarter because they just didn't have access to the water. One, you got to walk really far to go get it. And two, it's not even clean. So now that they have this water, they're able to do things as simple as shower more often or bathe more often and, and make sure their hygiene and cleanliness is taken care of. But then you start to think about more advanced things too. So one of the things I thought was interesting was one of the main problems that I found out that happens in Africa is there's tons of charity organizations that install water wells, but then they get abandoned. Right. So there's millions, literally millions of water wells throughout Africa that are just defunct at this point. They don't work. They're not operable. No one's using them because they were installed and then forgotten about, essentially. The wells that the water boys and we were helped raising money to install are solar powered. They have big tanks. So the water fills up in there throughout the day. And then they drilled about 700 feet deep to get to this water. So it's a massive operation. It obviously takes an extended period of time when you're bringing the materials and the, the construction crew and everyone out to remote villages like that to do. But it was interesting how advanced they were when it came to management. For example, in the village, you had to pay, I think it was a dollar or maybe $2. It's in shillings, remember? So when you convert it to US dollars, maybe it was a dollar or $2 to get water. So there's a community water manager and he sits there and there's a lock on it and he unlocks it for you when you come and you pay him and you pay a dollar or $2 and they use that money. They keep it in a fund for maintenance, right? So any upkeep that the well requires. And then they also were trying to open a second well. So they, I think at the time it had been a year old or something like that. And maybe they were at 3000 or $4,000 that they had already saved up just off of people using the water. And you could quickly see, hey, can we get this to 30? Can we get this to 40,000, right? Without having any maintenance on this tank or, or maybe doing it periodically. And can we open a second one? And then it becomes kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where you're able to start to expand the reach of these projects. So I thought that was certainly interesting. And then the second part is like, Sure, bathing is one thing and cleanliness is another and hygiene. Those are, in my mind, basic human rights, right? The ability to have clean, accessible water is a necessity. The thing, though, that was interesting was you don't even think about the things that compound on top of that. I mentioned before they had houses that were built out of mud and sticks and were put together, but now they have the ability to make concrete, right? Because you have water and you're able to mix it. So they were literally building houses in the village that were more stable, that were better, that were used in concrete. So that was another thing that surprised me was just how quickly some of this stuff can start to compound. Again, you're in a very remote village, but at the end of the day, 
these things start to grow quickly. These people are smart. They understand how these things work. They just need access to it and they need capital to go make it happen. So the village was very insightful. It was very eye-opening. It was a great experience to go see, especially, you know, just removing myself from, I live in Miami, right? So it's, it's a completely different environment and just submerging yourself in that and being able to see how some of these people live and how they act and how they talk and what their culture's like was very interesting. But secondly, we went to a school and the school was a similar experience, but also completely different because the school was actually in town. It was basically like 15 minutes from the hotel, still within the town of Arusha. And you would expect them to have water because they're within town and most of the places in town have water, but they didn't. We went there and they had gotten a well the previous year and we did another ribbon cutting ceremony. Again, they couldn't have been nicer. We showed up, they were singing, the kids were smiling, they were cheering, they were trying to give us high fives, they were trying to take pictures with us. Just an incredible, incredible, incredible reception. But again, it was just eye-opening how much this water meant to them. And they, they kept saying, water is life. Water is life. That was their saying that, that most Africans believe. And they, they just kept telling us that, that water is life, because that's how important it is to them, right? So the school, the kids have access to it. They had water distribution points. They were able to go in and use water on a daily basis, keep themselves clean. The school is functioning. They're learning English. They're learning other stuff, right? So it was very cool to see just how welcoming some of these kids were. They wanted to take pictures with us. They wanted to play games. They wanted to do all this. And one of the things I kept thinking about was just like the idea of how pure kids are, right? When you grow up, you don't know anything. You're born in these circumstances that the opportunities are not distributed equally, right? So anyone in the world can be talented. You can be born and have a specific set of talent or skills inherently to you. And sure, they get refined over time, but opportunities are not equal. And these kids are born in these environments and, and they don't necessarily know better, but the smile on their face just tells you everything you need to know, right? So maybe they don't know better, but they're dealing with it the best they can. And they're loving life. They're having a great time. They want to talk to you. They want to interact with you. They want to smile. They want to laugh. They were singing. They were dancing. And it was just really, really, really cool to see the impact that the water wells can have on not only, again, the cleanliness of people and their ability to do basic things that humans should have the right to do, but also just their overall happiness. Because I think most people would agree that's really what it's all about. Those were the villages and the schools. Again, eye-opening to see. We spent at least two days doing that, the first couple of days. We went on a safari also, which was very cool, mini safari. Saw some animals, some giraffes and stuff like that and zebras. But then on day three, we took off to the mountain. And again, Mount Kilimanjaro is a beast. It's 19,341 feet at summit. The camp that you sleep in the night before, for context here, is higher than any point in the continental United States. So for those people that know about altitude and how much it can impact your body and so forth, the mountain is a monster and it's very tough. The actual technical ability to climb is not that hard. It's mostly just hiking, but the ability to deal with altitude and do it for five, six, seven days without showering with the difficulty to breathe and headaches and all that kind of stuff takes a lot out of you. So we went and did that. For those that are familiar with the mountain, we went the wrong guy route, which is if you think about the mountain, the mountain is in the northern part of Tanzania. We drove up from the southern part and we drove around the mountain towards the Kenya border and entered the park that way. You start at a few thousand feet. The trip takes, I think we took five or six days to do it. And we hike up for the first camp. The general way to think about it is you're basically hiking for four to five hours at a time. You're gaining maybe a few thousand feet of elevation and you're hiking a few miles, right? So a few miles, a few thousand feet of elevation takes about four to five hours each day. So we do it. We have an amazing, amazing, amazing group of porters and guides with us. So we had about 70 porters for the 10 of us. And to me, that sounded like an insane amount of people. I don't know what I was necessarily expecting, but if you would have asked me before the trip, I'm assuming my guests would have been around maybe 20, 15, something like that, much smaller amount. But the camp was fantastic. 
They had tents set up for us. They had a mess tent where we ate meals. They had people that were setting up bathrooms, right? And things like that. So it wasn't glamping by any means, but it was much nicer than I imagined. And we had a bunch of tour guides with us who were very educational around the mountain specifically and then Tanzania in general. It was just a great experience. And we hiked each day again. We did four to five hours and it went for four days. There was one camp, two camp, three camps. So you hike three days in a row there. And then from three to four, camp three goes to Kibo Hut. And Kibo Hut, again, is the camp that's about 15,000 feet altitude. And that is incredibly high to sleep at. And as someone who doesn't spend much time in altitude living down here in Miami, it was one of the things that I noticed in those was just how lethargic you get at that amount of altitude immediately. I got up there and all of a sudden I was joking with someone. I, when I got in bed that night, I was out of breath, <laughs> literally just climbing into the sleeping bag and trying to get myself set up and go to sleep. You have to catch your breath. And Orca, who was one of the, the tour guides and the owner of the adventure company that took us up, he said, hey, if you're sitting there, you're basically jogging, right? And that's like how your heart rate is reacting and how your body is reacting due to the altitude. So to their credit, you don't want to spend a lot of time there. We left the camp three at seven or 8 a.m. in the morning. We hiked for four or five hours, got there around 1 p.m., had lunch at 15,000 feet at the camp. Tents were set up, everything like that. We hung out for a few hours. We had dinner around five, finished around six, and then you go to bed. And you go to bed as soon as you can, maybe 6, 30, 7. And you don't really sleep much because what you guys don't know is you're going for summit that night. I mean, we knew that staying there, but I'm telling you guys is you leave for summit at midnight. So we woke up, everyone wakes up at 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m., whatever it was. You get up, you put on all your clothes. Again, it's about 15 to 20 degrees outside, so pretty cold to go hiking. And you put on all your stuff and you set out at midnight to go climb the rest of the mountain. And again, it's 19,341 feet. So you have just over 4,000 feet left to climb. There's a bunch of switchbacks because the mountain is straight vertical from there. It's about seven hours straight of hiking, just vertical mountain. And at first we laughed because when you leave at midnight, you can't see. We had these headlamps on and you're basically just walking a single file line, very slow, looking at the person's feet in front of you to make sure you don't trip over anything or you don't miss a step or fall off the mountain. And we joked when we were done, because if you looked at it during the daylight, you'd probably just quit immediately. You'd be like, dude, that is way too vertical. I am not even going to go try attempt that. So I think to some degree, it was probably good that we left during midnight. That aside, we start walking up the mountain from Kibo Hut to Gilman's Point, which is probably just a couple hundred meters shorter than the actual peak of the mountain. It took about seven hours, maybe six and a half hours. So just straight hiking, you take a couple breaks, maybe two to three breaks, but they're really only 30 seconds to 60 seconds at a time because you don't want to get cold. You don't want to stop your momentum. You want to keep moving as quickly as you can. So we kept doing that. We kept doing that. Our group got split up a little bit. There was 10 of us and maybe a couple of people fell behind. A couple of people went ahead, but we all tried to stay kind of within the same pack and, and we started moving. So we get to Gilman's point around 6.30. We moved pretty quick relative to what the group was expecting or the tour guides were expecting. Sun was coming up. But what most people don't realize is you're at Gilman's point, which is only a couple hundred meters shorter than the actual peak. It's still one of the highest points in all of Africa and all of the US and so forth. But to get to the actual peak, Uhura Peak, is about another two hours of hiking, right? So we get up there. I'm like, ah, oh, we're here. You look at another point, you're like, oh, that one's a little bit higher, but it's still pretty close. You know, maybe it's 30 minute walk or whatever. And they're like, no, 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 no. Look at that one. And they point you down the road and you see one that's like two hours away. Again, it's a volcano. So you're walking on the rim of the volcano and you have to go to this highest peak. So 
That's what we set out to do. I was taking Diamox at the time. And for people who hike and know what this is, Diamox is how you deal with altitude sickness and, and to prepare yourself for some of the altitude. Multiple people on the trip were taking it. But as someone who wasn't in altitude a lot, I felt like I should take it. I was taking it for days leading up to it. I was making sure to eat as much as I could because you're burning. I was wearing my whoop during the trip and I was burning, you know, a few thousand calories, 3,000, 4,000 calories per day. So you're making sure to eat as much as you can at the camp. They fed us really well. They made sure that we just kept eating. And then throughout the day, you're drinking probably, I was drinking five, six, seven liters of water per day, just tons and tons of tons of water to make sure I stayed as hydrated as I possibly could because I knew we just kept hearing, you know, the altitude, the altitude, the altitude. Lucky enough, you know, I got up there and I still got altitude sickness. <laughs> the second we left camp, I lost my entire appetite. I couldn't drink. I couldn't eat the entire way up. You're sleep deprived. Obviously you hiked for four to five hours during the day. You burnt a few thousand calories. You're at a high altitude already at 15,000 feet at the camp. And then you start hiking at midnight. So you're tired, you're hungry, you're dehydrated and all of this. And it starts to impact your body in a really bad way. I was getting headaches. I was slightly dizzy. And you know, it's not to the point where you're like, Hey, I can't continue. That happens to some people for sure. But at this point, it's just like, all right, you got to dig deep. And one of the things I thought a lot about was the tour guides kept telling us, this is all mental. You know, like as long as you are physically able to do it, that's not going to be a problem. Like if you're in good shape and you work out and you do all this and you don't have any extenuating circumstances that are out of your control, like you're going to be able to do it physically. And then it's just all about your mentality. Like just make sure you tell yourself you're going to do it. So that's what I kept thinking about was there's no turning back. There's just no ability not to do this. I came all the way to Africa. I got to do this. So just kept going, kept going, kept going. And I was able to reach the peak. We all reached the peak. So we got up to the peak around maybe 7.30 or 8.30. And we took our pictures. It's absolutely incredible up there. It's beautiful up there. There was snow on the ground, which there always isn't. Most of the time, there's actually not snow, but it had rained a few of the days previously. And again, it's 15 degrees up there. So plenty of snow on the ground. We walked around the, the volcano, the rim got to the summit, took our pictures. And then what people don't know is you're only up there for about 15 minutes because you're at almost 20,000 feet of altitude. So you don't want to be up there for much longer than that before you start to get sick and hungry. And you got to remember and, and tell yourself during the time, like, hey, wait, we got to go all the way back down. So that route that just took us seven or eight hours to hike up, we got to go back now. And sure, it takes a little bit less time, but it's still quite a hike back. And now the sun's up and it's heating up and everything like that. So we stayed there for about 15 minutes and then we went back. We got back down maybe around maybe noon or something like that. You hang out for about an hour. You drink as much water as you can. Maybe you sleep for a minute. You try to get some food or whatever it is. And then we set out for another four to five hour hike back down the mountain because you don't want to be at altitude again for that long. So we hiked for another four to five hours down another route to the Harambo hut, which is at very similar to camp three in altitude. I think it was 3,700 meters high. So whatever that converts to feet times 3.2 or whatever, but call it 12,000 feet or something like that. So we hiked there, you sleep there. And then the last day we hiked out and the last hike is about six or seven hours. So we got out after maybe six days, we hiked miles and miles and miles and miles. We went from essentially flat elevation to 20,000 feet and back. And it was just an incredible, incredible, incredible experience. One of the things we said was when we got down, everyone's asking, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And one of the things I thought about was immediately you're like, no, no way in hell. Like that sucked. That was terrible. I don't want anything to do with that because it was tough. But then you start to think about like, okay, the further you get removed from it, you start to forget about some of the things that suck so much. Oh, we had to wake up early. Um, I had a headache. Uh, I was a little bit dizzy. Uh, I was tired. And you start to just think about how much fun it was because 
the top of the mountain is unlike anything you've ever seen, right? You're above the clouds, there's snow, you're in a volcano, essentially. You're with a group of other people who just did the exact same difficult task that you did. So it's a really rewarding experience. Some people got emotional at the top. It was very cool, I would say. We go back down the mountain and we went back to the hotel that day. You shower for the first time in six or seven days at this point. So that feels incredible. You have a beer, you get drunk off one beer basically because you're so dehydrated. We just had a great time. We had a bunch of food back at the hotel and we just hung out and, and talked about the trip. So it was a great experience. And one of the last things I want to close on is what I learned, right? And I think it's always important to kind of think back on what you learned from the experience. And part of this is obviously, hey, look, we help some people. There's problems going on there. They don't have clean, accessible water, right? In my mind, I believe the access to clean water is a fundamental human right. No one should have to walk miles or threaten the safety of their family and friends to go get it. That was important to me, right? And I think that was important to everyone that was on the trip was to raise money to do this. And climbing Mount Kilimanjaro was kind of ancillary to that, right? When you raise money, sometimes you think of things that are difficult or hard or painful so people understand that you're putting in the work too. You're not just asking them for money. It's easy for someone to just go write a check. But when you put your time, your effort, your energy, your resources into something, it makes it much more impactful for someone to give you money, to donate to something, to raise money. So I think that's an important part of the trip. But when it comes to what I learned, I think there was a few things I took away. One would be just, this is a very common saying, but you can learn something from everyone, right? I think most people agree with this by now, but it, it holds true. And what I mean by this is not only the people in the schools and the villages, right? They tell you things, they talk to you things, they're very creative, they're genius in some capacity, right? Because their lack of resources makes them more creative than most people would be here in the United States. But even the tour guides, right? The, the porters, the people that were leading us on the tour. We had a, a tour guide named Ola. He led us most of the way. He's from Tanzania. He has kids in Tanzania. He grew up there. He's lived there his entire life. He's a tour guide for the company. He taught us about a bunch of stuff. You know, you're walking for hours at a time. So you stand up there and you talk to him and he, he was going on about politics and business and other things in the country. It was just really insightful to hear and learn about the country in a way that you just can't do online. For example, he's talking about COVID and he says, yeah, you know, COVID was a big problem here, obviously. But what people don't realize is more people die of food shortages here in this country than from COVID right? But he feels, and a lot of other citizens there feel, that the government is corrupt to the point where they only care about wealthy people. And they say, so wealthy people are dying from COVID, then it's a big deal. They need to do all these different things. They need to care about it a lot. But when it comes to food shortages and government assistance and all those things, they're much more quiet because it doesn't impact them to the same degree. The other thing was about wages. So you learn very quickly when you're there, 5 10 15 $20 means a lot to someone there just based on the cost of living and what they earn in hourly wages. So I'm talking to him about that for a little bit. And he tells me that the average worker, I think the minimum wage in Tanzania, he said was about $250 a month. And then it goes all the way up to if you're super educated, if you go to primary, secondary university and, and postgraduate school to become a doctor or a lawyer, maybe you earn about $1,000 a month. So, you know, that makes sense, 250 four times that for someone who's educated. But the thing that I didn't realize is the military people get paid the best. He was telling me that he's actually applied for a military, a role in the military 10 times and he hasn't gotten it because his role in the military would pay about $1,500. So about 50% more than a doctor or a lawyer per month, but he hasn't gotten it because there's extreme nepotism going on in the country and corruption when it comes to the military, right? So if you don't know someone in the military, if you don't have a family member in the military, if you don't know a high ranking official, then your chances of getting in are very slim. So he's a great guy, incredibly hard worker, was literally the main reason why most of us made it up the mountain, just his ability not only to guide us, but motivate us and take care of us. And he's the type of person that you're like, okay, yeah, he's going to succeed in whatever he does. But it just speaks to 
some of the corruption, right? We saw people being bribed. We saw all of this stuff. So things like that I thought were awesome to learn from the people within the culture. And off the back of that, the second biggest thing I took away was just the idea of immersing yourself in different cultures, right? And using travel as a vehicle to do that. And one of the things that I thought a lot about was just how COVID has impacted our ability to do that. The last two years with COVID, we haven't had the ability to travel, right, internationally. And, and I think this applies to anywhere in the world, right? You can go to extremely wealthy areas. You can go to extremely poverty-driven areas or places that are poor, and you can learn just as much from each of them. It doesn't matter what your social class is. doesn't matter how much money you make. But I think the ability to go to different cultures and understand how people live is unique. There's only so much you can learn on the internet. There's only so much you can learn from a podcast or a conversation with someone. You have to really go there and experience it. You have to experience the food. You have to experience the conversations. You have to experience the dialect. You have to understand how these people think, how they move, and so forth. So that was huge for me. It was just not only seeing the wells, not only climbing the mountains, but talking to the people and really understanding some of the challenges they faced and talking through some of that stuff with them. It was it was a life-changing experience, something that I highly recommend everyone at least checks out. They have a website called waterboys.org. Again, that's waterboys.org. You can go to. It tells you about the mission. They have a video on there, I believe, that the NFL did and shows exactly how the hike goes and what they're doing with clean water and all of that. And if you can donate, great. That's awesome. If not, don't worry about it, right? Just continue to spread the word as to why this stuff is important because it was really impactful to see firsthand. I'll leave you guys with that for today. I appreciate all of you listening to the podcast. I appreciate you guys for reading the newsletter. I appreciate you guys for following me and everything that I do. It means a whole hell of a lot to me. It was incredible to log offline and just get away for a week and be in nature and do these things. But I'm happy to be back to work also because one of the things I love the most is just interacting with you guys and, and letting you guys ask questions and hear these stories and stuff like that. So Last but not least, just thank you to everyone who donated. I raised, again, about $23,000 or so. My goal was $25,000. Maybe we'll get there over the next day or two. But regardless, it was just a lot of money. And it's going to make a huge difference to thousands of people within Tanzania. So to the 130 people that donated and, and to anyone else who is thinking about it or will do it or has done it in the past, just thank you. Because even if you couldn't be there, you couldn't travel, you couldn't go climb the mountain or whatever it is, like you're making a difference with not only the mind share that you're giving this, but your dollars. So thank you so much for doing this. I know Chris and everyone else at the foundation really appreciates it. I did a podcast with Chris, if you want to go listen to that too, a couple episodes ago or a couple weeks ago, where he talks about some of the difficulties also. But if anyone has any questions about the foundation or the charity or anything, just reach out to me on Twitter or email or whatever it is, and we'll chat about it. But thank you guys so much for listening, and, and we'll talk soon. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.